Welcome to the Hiring Chronicles. Whether you're watching or listening, we're thrilled you're here with Amy and myself. We're an independent podcast, no ties to smart recruiters or anyone else. So there's no corporate jargon, just real talk. And despite the rumours, we're not perfect. So please ignore our good looks and charm and take our advice at your own risk. And let's dive in. I feel like we should say a welcome back. We should say a welcome back. There's are been you, a break. You, can I? Can we just confirm that you're in one piece and you've got teeth? You've got some kind of structured back. I am. I am a little bit worse for wear. So three slip discs over the course of a couple of weeks and a root canal. I, I didn't know I needed a root canal because I was on that much medication for my back. I was oblivious to the fact that my teeth were infected. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, back. We're back filming. We've got several guests lined up and very exciting guests. E- even a new structure as well yeah so we'll we're see. gonna we're gonna split it into two parts right mm-hmm. so first part especially today is going to be all about barb from sapia and then we're going to dig into a specific topic around ai for barb so we're going to kind of see how that goes but i think it will be be interesting for every, our listeners to be able to understand who they are all right so barb from australia welcome <laughs> Thank you for coming all the way from Australia oh, just look, for us. Just for you guys. It's a delight <laughs> to be here. <laughs> we should say that she's come all the way from Australia, but actually the other side of Barnes Bridge. Yes. Like we've, we've, we've had a bit of a journey already this morning, Barb, haven't we? I had to fortify myself with a wine at a pub on the way. <laughs> We found Barb in a nice little pub with a lovely glass of red wine, which it, is perfect. It's a good way to start the day looking through the Young's pubs and finding <laughs> finding random people that aren't Barb to then find Barb. So we're, we're glad you're here. Thank you for coming. Pleasure. So, Barb, how do you come from being a solicitor to founder, co-founder, CEO of an incredible AI company? Talk well, to us about it that, comes from being opportunistic <laughs> in your career um, and not having too many plans around what you end up doing. So I, um, I was born in Africa, in Zimbabwe. My family immigrated to Australia for a better life and I was afforded opportunities that a lot of people don't get by virtue of my religion, managed to get into a private school that was free um, and that just created an incredible Um, set of networks and opportunities that a lot of people don't get. So I think fairly young I could see what comes from networks that um, other people don't get the benefit of. Um, I worked pretty hard at school. I ended up doing law. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was the first generation of my family at university. And I really just did what my friends were doing who were one year ahead of me and realised that practising law was not for me went and did an MBA, moved into management consulting, worked at Boston Consulting Group for many years um, and then fell into HR when my kids were young and I didn't want to travel anymore. And so, you know, what what story that tells is that, you know, you, you might aspire when you're young to have a dream of where your career ends up but you also need to be fairly opportunistic and take the things that come your way. And um, particularly as a mum, you know, I've got three kids, my kids are a lot older now and you don't – have the luxury of following a really planned path in your career. Um, I took time out to be with my kids and then I came back into the workforce. So I think there are lots of lessons in that, particularly for women or anyone who's taking time out from their career. Don't feel like you're losing out. You know, I think you'll have long careers today, particularly as they try and force retirement age to be, 
you know, older and older and, um, you know, be where you want to be and enjoy what you're doing and there will always be a job for you to come back to that, that can excite you. I think the other thing that my career has taught me is that I wouldn't be here without an incredible group of friends, mostly women. I think there's a great line. I'm sounding very pro-female here. Um, <laughs> there's a great line that I heard that I repeat often, which is women succeed in the company of a lot of good women and a few good men. You know, you need mentors of both kinds, but my female friends are really who have fueled me and motivated me and given me the confidence to do what I do, and I'm I'm sort of very grateful for that. So, you know, it's okay to take time out from your career. Just stay connected to your friends because I think they help you come back when you're ready. I mean, what an intro. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel outnumbered, to be fair. <laughs> you just chat to Bob. <laughs> wow. Um, I don't know really where to begin with that, Bob, but when – when we looked at your background, you, you went from lawyer, Boston Consulting Group, you've skipped out several segments, and then suddenly you're a CEO. At what part in your career did you think now is the time to be looking at founding a company? Like that's, that's a big change and jump over the, the course of your lifetime. So I'm wondering, was there a particular moment that happened to you or something in particular where you were like, I've got to go for this now myself. So look, the, um, you know, at school we had a, a yearbook and they had little sayings um, underneath everyone's name and under mine was something like, um, you know, uh, it was it was <laughs> a Buster Hyman, um, just nothing will faze me. You know, I'm a bit of a driver and I, I guess I'm not someone who's passive and sits back and observes a problem. Like one of the things that people in our business hear a lot from me is don't admire the problem fix it. Um, and so I'm a doer, I'm a builder. And I could see when I was working in HR at BCG and I was CHRO of a large tech company that there were so many things broken around people. You know, there was very conscious bias. Um, you know, I worked at what was then the largest digital company in Australia called the REA Group, you know, mostly owned by news. Think of think of Rightmove, is that mm -hmm. what it's called mm -hmm. in the yep. UK? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, so very disruptive tech company that went in and took all the money for real estate advertising from the newspapers and was very successful. But it had been around for 20 years and it wasn't really a startup. And I hired this guy who was my 2IC. He came in to run OD, culture, diversity. And he won't mind me saying this. He was on the extreme end of camp, right? Mm -hmm. And I definitely wanted someone who was, you know, different, right, and who was going to challenge people in a very sort of – visceral way and on the first day that he started before anyone had met him one of his senior engineers came to me and said Barb you know we don't celebrate that we hire people from corporate because he had a few banks and a telco on his resume and they judged him entirely by his work you know associations and that was just stunning to me. Like you haven't even met this person and you've made all these judgments about them. And it turns out that three years later when that person left, he had made the biggest difference out of everyone in my team to the culture, to people's awareness of diversity and the importance of being um, open-minded to different viewpoints, right? He kind of normalised that it's okay to talk about this stuff and he really mainstreamed diversity. Our culture evolved significantly and so – you know, that to me was such a lesson in how limiting our own views are about people and particularly how resumes can really force us to judge people in a very unfair way, which doesn't serve the organisation well. Um, and so that was a problem. The other problem that I could see was that our engineers were very proud of the fact that at, 
you know, it was so hard to get a job there and only 2% of people that applied ended up getting a job and, you know, they were spending all their time in, in, in interviews because engineers love to hire for culture fit, which means everyone needs to have a coffee with the person that they want to make an offer to. And my boss, the CEO, said to me, Barb, we aren't going to hit our roadmap. We're not going to meet our revenue targets because your engineers, our engineers are spending so much time in interviewing. Fix it. And I didn't know how. So I could see that we were missing out on a lot of talent because of bias. I could see that it was a big invisible cost hiring. Um, and then when it came to leadership decisions, again, I think that your leaders are your culture. And I think that how you make your decisions around who you hire, who you promote, creates trust or kills trust in an organization. And I think trust is a really critical trait to nurture as a you know head of HR, as a leader. But there wasn't any way to do it differently. And so I had no idea what the solution was. I just felt there had to be a different way. So I found a person who had worked at um, a very successful HR tech company called CultureAmp that you might have heard yep. of. And he had done every year the analysis around who was the top quartile most engaged companies and the bottom quartile. And every year he did this analysis, it didn't change. The same companies were in the top, the same were in the bottom. And he came to the conclusion that the only way you change culture is when you change the people. And so he joined me on this journey and we started to just ideate on what could this look like. And I was the human side of the innovation and he was the science side of the innovation. And if you had to think of an example of where the right person can transform culture, you just need to look at Microsoft. So Microsoft under Steve Barmer was a place where you couldn't even bring in an iPhone. You had to leave it at reception. He was um, why, aggressive. Why was that? Why was because that? Because they were the competition and it was, we don't tolerate the competition here. It's only Microsoft that matters. And one of the first things Sachin Adela did was remove that ban and he expected people to have iPhones and competitive products on the table. He normalised that looking at what others do and learning from that and being curious about that is what's going to make us great. You know, the arrogance that came from that Microsoft heritage um, was not serving Microsoft well. And, you know, that's a person that his persona, those small decisions that he made, have fundamentally transformed Microsoft into a company that people now want to work with. Whereas, I don't know if you remember how old you are, but, you know, probably eight, nine years ago, Microsoft was not a place that you would put on your wish list as a, you know, a person working in technology. So the power of people and finding the right person is incredible to change culture to create culture how did you find the right person for you though to go on this this journey with look I wish I could say that I applied a lot of science um, <laughs> to it I you know I think that there is definitely a DNA to being a founder um, and you know I wasn't aware of it then um, in fact there's just been some research shared that there is a there is absolutely a personality type associated with being a founder. And, I mean, I can talk about myself and, you know, how I present, which is I'm sort of relentless. Um, I think there's a not enoughness that comes from being in a startup, you know, that you we all carry, particularly the ones who were there in the early days, that we've got something to prove to our parents, to our partners, to our family. You know, there's just – it's not good enough. And I think if you speak to people on the team, they will say that, like it's never enough. And I had people say that to me when I was a leader, when I was a CHRO, which is, Barb, I don't think I'm ever going to meet your expectations. And clearly there's something in me 
that is, is, is that never in- happy with my own performance, right? And so that you kind of need that in a startup. But is that, do you think that that's innate within you or is that stemmed from your childhood, your upbringing? Where does that come from? So they say that 50% of your personality is inherited. So it's a bit of both. Um, you know, if I look, I've got three siblings, we're different, we're not all the same. So there's definitely an element of where I am in the family hierarchy, I'm number three. Um, my older sisters are really close in age and I always felt like I was the lone one and they didn't pay enough attention to me. And, you know, there's this great family story of I ran away from home when I was 11 because I had my hair cut and no one recognised how traumatic that was. (laughs) How far did you you get? You know, it's definitely – I went to the airport. I walked like 20 kilometres. It was quite the story. I'm sharing this publicly across Australia. It's a family. It's a family uh, traumatizing experience that they always remind me of. Your parents must have been freaking. They were. They called the police. It was incredibly embarrassing. (laughs) Was there actually a hunt for you then? Well, there was a you know about to go on TV showing a photo of me wearing my bathers at the (gasps) beach. Which thankfully it didn't get that far. I ended up calling home, but um, I feel like there's anyway, a bit of a so common this- theme with Barb just getting <laughs> just wandering off. No wonder she couldn't find the studio. <laughs> she was on the run. <laughs> oh oh wow, that is a story in itself. So fifty percent is derived from like the family, the upbringing, and fifty percent is within you. Correct. Yeah, so- that is what the research says. I think that's about right. So, is there a time where you think that? Perhaps you need to rein it back a little bit. If someone's approaching you and saying, Barb, I just don't think I'm ever enough for you. Have you ever gone, all right, I've pushed it too far? That's a really interesting question. Um, You know, I think it's better to be really honest about what it takes. And so I'll say to people, if you're joining a startup for work-life balance, don't join our startup. Um, you know, in Australia, they've just introduced this legislation in Victoria around psychological safety in the workplace. To me, that's anathema with being in a startup, right? You're uncomfortable every day. There are a thousand other companies who are trying to do what we're doing. You have to, you have to, you have to be smarter. You have to be edgy. You have to take risks. Um, and so I think it suits some people. And a lot of people imagine themselves as being suited to a startup who are completely unsuited to a startup life. You have to have a level of confidence, not arrogance, but confidence to just back yourself. You know, I remember when we released probably the most controversial product, which is we have this ability to understand people through language and we converted, you know, part of what makes recruitment terrible is it's terrible for people. It's terrible for candidates. You put your resume in, you know, you apply for hundreds of jobs. We had a guy in our team who applied for 300 jobs. And he got two callbacks. Like how humiliating is that? Most of the time you get nothing back. And even if you go for an interview, you get nothing out of that, right? It's an undignifying experience for a lot of – for most people. Um, And even if you're applying to Amazon and you're going through six rounds of interviews, it's still a torturous experience. And so I've always felt that we needed to change that and we needed to respect that you're making a decision too about your life. And, you know, you wouldn't go out on a date with someone and say – Hold the questions, Amy. You know, I've got my things that I need to establish first and then yeah. I'll decide whether I go on a second date. You're both on this journey to get to know each other and go, is there a fit here? Is this something that we both want? It's the same with the job, but it isn't designed that way. And, you know, it's all in the power of the organisation to manage the funnel, even the way the language that we talk about it. It's so dehumanising. And so I always felt that we needed to 
humanise it to dignify it. So we created this product where every candidate who is interviewed, and the idea is that everyone is interviewed, gets feedback, automated feedback. And customers were terrified. Qantas Group was the first one. They've been with us for five years that, you know, we're willing to test it. And they were terrified that candidates would call up and say, this isn't me, you've got me wrong, I'm going to sue you. <laughs> um, and I don't think we've had anyone at any time ever call us up and say, this is wrong, you shouldn't be doing this, I don't like this. In fact, it's our biggest strength because people want to be heard, you know, they want to be understood and that's what you need to give them, right? They know they may not get the job but they just want some dignity, some respect in that. And so, you know, I remember when we shipped it and I just said to the team, do it, do it, do it, put it out, press the button, go. (laughs) And, you know, there's a saying I think from Reid Hoffman who's the founder of LinkedIn that if you put out a product – that you're not embarrassed by, you're too late. And I wasn't embarrassed by it. I was really proud of it. But the data science team and the people science team were scared about putting this out there because no one had ever done it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you got to take those risks. So you need a level of confidence to just, you know, be the person at the front that everyone then feels like is protecting them if it doesn't work. How do you build that confidence though? Because I, I think I'm guilty of not having that confidence You'll but, get in there, though. But how do you, like, what what is it that you could say, even to a woman or a man, whatever, but just shut up and get on with it? Like, you, even in that example, you're saying, you know, all the, the rest of the team weren't ready, they were hesitant, but you're like, just ship it, just go. Mm. How do you, mm. is that something that's within you or can you build that? Oh, you can definitely build it. You know, I think it's surrounding yourself with the right people who believe in you. You know, when I talk about that network of people, um, having advocates, having people with your back, whether that's your family, your siblings, you know, I have three kids and the most important thing for me with them is that they're connected and they're close because one day I won't be around. But if they've got each other, I know they'll be more confident to face into life's, you know, challenges. Um, I think there is a maturing part of that. I think being a mum, you, you, you lose confidence and then you kind of find your way back when you realise you're not so bad. Um, and your kids are pretty cool, you know, and, and pretty okay. Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of risk-taking. You know, my mum died when I was really young and then my father remarried and so I was very much alone and wanted to be independent and that absolutely shaped me 100%. You know, there are many stories of people where life's, you know, downs create the space for you to be different and to be bold and to be brave and without a doubt that has really shaped my experience. You know, I have this concept of, as a parent, of a bit of a benign neglect of my kids is not a bad thing. You know, I'm not a helicopter parent. I'm like, you do it. Um, and I think you've got to create space for people to fail. And, you know, what's on the other side of failure? Kind of nothing, really. Um, so I, you have to model that as a parent um, and you surround yourself with other people who are doing it and you consciously look for little things that don't feel so scary to try sports whatever it might be I mean I've never been one to go and do crazy you know bungee jumping or anything like that but um I I guess I'm also really curious like I'm a I'm a you know relentless learner I love learning that's pretty important when you're in a startup how how is that um transpiring with your children then so You've got three kids. You are very driven, determined, relentless. Has there been an effect where you can spot 
mini barb amongst your kids and do you have another sort of polar opposite where it's like they're they're just so opposite to what I am and what I'm ever going to be and that's fine but how how is it like with your three kids compared to you oh look I think parenting it, it, it makes you um you know, parenting and being a leader are sort of a bit similar in that they're both quite thankless <laughs> most of the time. You know, your kids don't come to you every day and go, oh, you're incredible, mum. <laughs> and nor do your team members do that, particularly when you're a CEO, right? You don't really get any feedback, um, good or bad. Sometimes if you get it, it's mostly the bad stuff. Do you feel that you need it? Um, well, so part of my issue, you know, and there are always two sides to a strength, is that um, I don't work well with people who are needy. <laughs> I say that. So if you need Amy Lee. a lot of validation, <laughs> oh, it's no. not gonna it's not gonna work, right? Because um but I, I I've softened in that. I realise that everyone needs some element of you know what what you did there was really special. You know, thank you for doing that. And everyone's human. I, I think because I didn't have parents sort of around from a young age, I really found my own sustenance um and, you know, achievement. I guess, was what kept me going. I'm not saying that that's necessarily healthy. I can see that in my youngest and it really worries me that so much of her identity is wrapped up in grades and, you know, she'll just send me the grade and, you know, I'll say, how do you feel? You know, um, how did you feel when you got that? Um, I'm so proud of you. You know, you're proud of yourself and I don't want her to just live for those benchmarks because I don't think that's a very fulfilling life but I only know that because I've done that too much uh in my life having said that I'm very competitive and I hate losing <laughs> <laughs> that I can relate to. yeah yeah I think you get on there I mean we're gonna we're gonna touch into part two about sapier talking about hard skills soft skills real skills versus learned skills things like that you've referenced publicly in your blogs but from like a personal perspective, I think it's a good summary of who Barb is. It gives it a, a flavor for the type of person that you are and what it's taken to build your business. One question I've got for you is, do you have like a, a target as a CEO? You founded Sapier. You're relentless in your search. Where do you where do you go to? What how do you set your next goal and what does that look like? So look, in the business, we have we have a strong immigrant culture. A lot of people in the early founder team are immigrants. And, you know, we're all white, right? Like we don't realise what it's like to be an immigrant when you're not white. And, um, you know, we hear these stories. I interviewed our team recently. Anyone who's Chinese or Asian has to give themselves an English name because otherwise they won't stand a chance of getting a job. And for some of these people, their family, you know, the family name they were given really means something to them. You know, I interviewed a guy who's Sri Lankan in our team, Madjura. I can't even pronounce his surname. I just call him Mads. And I said, you know, how did you find the challenge of getting a job in Australia? Australia's got quite a bit of racism, right, um, like every country. Yeah. And he said um, he refused to change his name, but he's given his children an English middle name. And it kind of made me really feel sad. Like he yeah. wanted to honour his Sri Lankan heritage by their first name being Sri Lankan. And you think, wow, like we don't face into that, you know. And then they leave this country, China, Vietnam, India, like it's, you know, hundreds of thousands of kilometres away. It takes them sometimes 14 hours to go back. During COVID, obviously, China shut down. So they didn't see their family for three years. Many of them don't see their family for years. 
And it's a completely different courage, you know, to, to do that. And it creates, it creates a DNA, you know, it really does. And so for me, success is that all of those people can buy a house for a million dollars and pay it off, you know, and go to their family and say, look, mum and dad, this is what I did. Because they often come from places where their parents you know, are still living in a village, right? And that, honestly, I always feel almost feel like I'm tearing up. That to me would actually be success, is that that team can buy a house and pay it off and put money in the bank for their kids' education. I and that's a good point to finish part one. <laughs> oh, Jesus, That's Bob. incredible. I don't think I've been touched like that before, Bob. Right. Well, uh, I think we'll call that part one. What do you reckon, Ames? I think that's part a good one. part Let's one. Let's talk about AI. Let's part one's on. done. Join us for part two coming soon. <laughs>